My father used to say that the Langoliers were little creatures that lived in closets and sewers and other dark places. Like elves? No! <laughs> no, not like elves. Nothing quite so pleasant, I'm afraid. He said that all they really were was hair and teeth and fast little legs. And all oh, those little legs had to be fast so that they could catch up with all the bad little boys no matter how quickly they scamper. Stop it. You're scaring her. No, he's not. I know make-believe when I hear it. I think what Laurel means is that I'm scaring her. When my dad said there were, there were thousands of Langoliers, there had to be thousands of them because there are millions of bad little boys and bad little girls scampering all over the world. Oh, my father loved that word, scampering. I think because it implies senseless, directionless, unproductive motion. Because the Langoliers, they run. They have purpose. In fact, you could say that the Langoliers are purpose personified. What did the kids do that was so bad the Langoliers had to run after them? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, Dinah. Because when my daddy said someone was bad, he meant that that person was lazy. And a lazy person couldn't be part of the big picture. Because in my house, you were either part of the big picture or you were lying down on the job. And if you were lying down on the job and you weren't part of the big picture, then the Langoliers would come and take you out of the picture, take you out of it altogether. Okay, I'll go. But not before I curse you and everybody I see by the light of this fire. The curse of the white man from town! A day to eat and there are. Give me the power I beg of you! Face the music, teacher, teacher. Wait a minute, you're in this class. Sit down. Sit on this, motherfucker. Ugly doll. Fuck you. What is the answer, please? Or you simply can't afford to fail this class. The cicadas. now the branches some of shit in their skins welcome to fright night for real norman your mother's dead you killed her you told me so yourself I was wrong. She survived. And now, she's downstairs, waiting for you. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. <laughs> I can't stand it. 24. Jack's agility is 24. He escapes. That's not fair. I got killed and you should have been dead. You're not. Jack Black always escapes. Well, what are you gawking at? Go downstairs and open the motel. What do you expect us to live on, Hope? No, Mother. All right, as of right now, I'd like to welcome to the program uh, legendary writer, director, slash producer, I'm sure, Mr. Tom Holland. How you doing, sir? Very well, thank you. All right, first off, I yeah, <laughs> this is my with, with with Jamie, of course. Say hello, Jamie. Hello, Jamie. <laughs> hello, Jamie. <laughs> I was gonna say, don't forget his acting too. He also acts. He's pretty much he's all over the place. Yeah, 
Yeah. This is why I have my better half when you see Tom. Yes, she's your better half? Yes, indeed. She's the better looking half there for sure. Well, for sure. Yes, okay. <laughs> I, don't want to say the, I don't want to say the wrong thing. No, that's okay. That's okay. Um, yeah, first off, I'd like, basically like to talk to you about like how you got involved in filmmaking and stuff. Uh, oh, boy. Uh, the Well, I, 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 I just was always fascinated with films, uh, besotted. Uh, you know, I was the kid that, that went to the movies every day if he could, you know, uh, and I just loved them. And of course, the, I was I was born and raised in Midstate, New York, a small town across from Poughkeepsie, across the Hudson River. And I, I, there was nobody in my family that had anything to do with show business or knew anybody who did. So I guess the I guess the first 10 years were sort of taken up with, you know, trying to get to um, trying to get closer to movies. I knew I wanted I knew I wanted to to, to be involved. But I, I you know, I, I knew so little about it, Gary, that I, I didn't even know what I was trying to, 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 to do. You know, I mean, I, I I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a director. But those things seemed impossible. And I through a, 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 a high school teacher uh, who had a friend, I ended up at, 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 in the summer of my 16th birthday, which means I started when I was 15, apprenticing at the Bucks County Playhouse in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. I mean, there, 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 were, there, there were no opportunities for, 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 for film when I was a kid, but there was theater. It was was about a little bit. They had you know a dinner club theater and they had winter stock and summer stock and uh, so I I by apprenticing I learned these things and it, the, the the thing that was most available to me was acting as a way to get in and it wasn't a way to get into movies it was a way to get into theater but that was the only uh, path I had. So that's what I took, and the more I learned, you know, then I, I, I edged towards uh, getting an agent and then getting sent out to, uh, you know, for television shows. And that led to a contract with Warner Brothers, and that was the beginning. But, it, 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 you know, it was, it, was a, it, was a, it was no clear path in those days, and I didn't have the knowledge or any, any, any family or friends in the business. So I just sort of stumbled along for several years. Ah, great. Um, yeah, basically, like, um, my, my, my friend told me to ask you about the initiation of Sarah. Was that, like, your first big project? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. What was it like working on that? Well, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was scary. Uh, <clears throat> I, I wrote it. And I, I, who knows where these things come from? I've been writing, I've been writing tributes to Wes Craven this morning, and you know it's it's hard to know where anything comes from. Wes was, Wes was the personally Wes was the exact opposite of his movies. Personally, Wes was a sweet, gentle, lovely man, you know. And who would ever think that somebody that nice could put things like Nightmare on Elm Street on the screen? So, you know, I don't, I, the same goes for me, I guess. The first chance I got to write something, I started writing human to, to, to animal and beast transformations. And they were not uh, technically possible. That was 77, I think, maybe 78. And there wasn't the technical expertise to do what I was writing, but that's what I wanted to write, you know, so... You know, by, by, by 1980, they started to catch up when I wrote The Beast Within, which I think was released in 80 or 81. You know, it was, it, what I was feeling and thinking was, was part of the zeitgeist, the youth culture at the moment. Uh, you could see it in films like uh, Joe Dante's The Howling and John Landis's uh, Werewolf in London. But when I, when I handed in a big T... A big TV show that that had the sorority girls, you know, bewitched and turned into barnyard animals. 
ABC immediately replaced me. So that was initiation of Sarah. That's pretty wild stuff. I know Jamie, she, uh, she loves all things, uh, werewolves, especially the bipedal ones. And I'm sure she got some <laughs> questions about the beast within. I'm sure. That is a, that's actually a film that I, you know, I hear whenever I bring it up and uh, within the horror world, because I do other shows that are strictly horror shows, I actually do a werewolf show, a strictly werewolf show. And then on occasion that movie comes up, not as often as I would like for it to, because I think that a lot of people maybe in the younger generations aren't as familiar with that. Although it did recently get a release, um, like the Blu-ray release, which was nice. Yes, yes it um, did. And uh, I think it. I think that that Blu-ray is fantastic. I think it looks great. Um, because up to that point, I had I had it on VHS, and it was hard to watch at times. And then when I would try to show it to people, they're like, "I can't see anything," you know. <laughs> but yeah, no, I no. always had a special place in my heart for that movie, and like the line, "The cicadas are in the trees now," which <laughs> I just love. And that I there's something about that is some because that's something that you. I mean, yes, werewolves are a thing. You see a lot of those things, but, you know, a transforming cicada, <laughs> that's, that's really unusual. And so it, it stuck out to me since the first time I saw it. And it's always been very special to me because that is, you know, that's definitely original, you know? Well, it was, I, I was attempting to, to use a, a visual metaphor for what the lead boy Michael was going through. Because the cicada is a <clears throat> is a bug. It's a uh, a locust, <clears throat> and there there are two varieties. One sleeps for seventeen for seventeen years, and the other one sleeps for seven years, and then they <clears throat> they appear, burrow their way out of the ground, and they transform into these actually quite beautiful locusts. And of course, that's what was happening to Michael. He was shedding his skin, and because of a family curse, he was turning into a monster, physically. Mm -hmm. And but they, you know, they, 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 they. I should. I, I don't know why I didn't know better at the time, but I mean, there was no way they could, except for by going and getting nature footage. There was no way they could visually show the transformation of the cicada on screen. So they talked about it, and they, they you look at the tree and everything. But you never go in for a shot of the of the cicada, you know, shulking its shucking its its pupae and, and and stepping out as this as this locust like creature, which would have told you what what Michael was going through. Uh, I think I urged them to, to to go get some footage, you know, from from you know from like a nature photographer, but they never did. You can go on YouTube now and find all kinds of clips on on the cicadas transforming, but at the, obviously at the time there was no, uh, there was no YouTube. But anyway, that was, that was the idea in my script. And once again, I was a little bit ahead of the, of, of, of it technically being able to be done. Now, of course, you could do a bang up job with CGI or even with, uh, models, but not then. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> my stepbrother used to find the cicada husks on the tree and he would put them on the end of a stick and chase me around the yard with them. Well, that's, that's why you have such fond memories. <laughs> that may be why. <laughs> you knew, you knew what I was thinking when I did it. That, that was also, that was also the last film that United Artists released because that was at the moment in time when, um, of a Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate bankrupted United Artists. So the film ended up, uh, Beast Within. Beast Within ended up making money, but it sort of got buried beneath the uh, the the crash of, uh, of United Artists. I used to love United Artists pictures. The that that leader is still one of my favorites. You know, if I'm watching an old movie and then the UA logo comes up, they made some great pictures. Did a uh, <laughs> Step on your toes, Jamie. Did home video help uh, the Beast Within a lot? Yeah, yeah, it, it it did, and then it sort of went away, and then it then it's come back again with the Blu-ray release. Uh, you know, it's 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 interesting. You know, the well, interesting to me, I guess. But you know, the uh, it's like Psycho Two. Psycho Two was the 
biggest movie in the summer of 1982. And, you know, I mean, just a huge international hit. And that was a famous movie for about 10 years. And then it was forgotten, it seems to me, for 10 years. And then the last 10 years, the, the requests for, for, for interviews and for, for uh, you know, for critical uh, talking to critics about it. You know, the, the Psycho 2, the reputation has been doing nothing but growing. So you, you never know what's going to happen, you know, because they seem to go in and out of the public consciousness. Do you have any fond memories of working with Tony Perkins? Well, I certainly have memories. I liked him. I found him infinitely fascinating. I don't know if fond is the right word. You know, I mean, it, you know, he was Norman. I mean, you know, and, and, and <laughs> it's, yeah, Psycho was, you know, was like the definitive horror movie in my youth. That, to me, marks the beginning of modern horror. And that certainly, to me, is, is, is the first, it creates the first slasher film. You know, Halloween just, you know, took it uh, like 20, 20 some years later or 18 years later or whatever it was and and took took Psycho and and put it out in a, in a more a, in a simpler and more popular version. And so people mark the beginning of the slasher film quite often as Halloween. But to me, it was Psycho. I, I don't love it, but I would argue Black Christmas uh, had a big yes. influence on uh, Halloween. You know, good well. argument. Good argument, good argument, Gary. Yes, you can. I think that's one that often gets skipped over when people are hailing Halloween. And I love Halloween. I, I'm not trying to take anything away from Halloween at all. I think it's an amazing film. But I, but people often forget about Black Christmas, I think, in the, within the timeline. Did you find it daunting at all to, when you were writing Psycho 2, I mean, to, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, for that to for Psycho to be such a definitive film for you personally, what must that have been like when you were writing the screenplay for the sequel? Uh, was it was it frightening or was it exciting? It was frightening and intimidating, and as I started to get a handle on it, exciting. Yeah, it, it, yeah. The, the Jamie, it was it was like walking into a critical buzzsaw. You knew <laughs> you knew you were going to get just reamed by the critics. You knew that, that they were going to hate you just for having the temerity to do it in the first place. So I worked harder on that script to make sure that it was faithful to the, to, to the, to the original Psycho. That, you know, that I, did, I used only the given facts of the original Psycho as I, as I wrote Psycho 2. It's, it's as faithful a, a sequel as I think could have been done. And... Uh, when we started out with that, that was a cable movie, and the trick was to to, to, to get it into a to turn it into a feature film. At that moment in time, and this seems hard to believe now, but at that moment in time, Universal didn't didn't really have any idea how big Psycho was or the idea of a of a sequel would be. So what happened was I had to write a screenplay that was not only faithful to the original, but was actor bait, had a part that was so good that Tony Perkins would say yes to come back and play Norman again. And knock on wood, it, it, it worked like that. And Tony, Tony was, you know, was, in, was enthusiastic about playing Norman from Psycho 2. And Universal put out a, a press release that, that Tony was coming back as Norman, and there was this worldwide explosion of, of enthusiasm and interest. And that's when Universal realized that they had much more than just a cable movie, they had a, a feature film. And so that was, you know, the genesis of, of Psycho 2, which became the top grossing movie in the summer of 1982. And the beginning, and the beginning of, the, of, the, of the Psycho franchise, as we know it today, and you know uh, 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 the, the 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 motel, you know the Bates Motel is now <clears throat> a successful TV series, and I <clears throat> I'm sure that somehow has you know increased the interest in in, in, in Psycho too, you know. So I mean, so it, it all worked out very well. But what's well, happened? I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was say, and for the record, I really like it. I I think you did an excellent job. Thank you. Thank Not you. that that matters coming from me. It doesn't at all. But um, 
I have always been very happy with that one. It, mat it matters to me, Jamie. And, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, every, <clears throat> every, I'm grateful for every person who likes something that I've done. The, uh, well, what happened, what's happened that, that, that separates Psycho from so many of the others is that it's drawn critical. I mean, film critics call me and have really serious in-depth interviews about, you know, about what I was doing with, with that script because Psycho 2 was really sort of the last meeting of those who had worked with Mr. Hitchcock, you know, it was, it was the last of the survivors getting together, you know, the, it was Lila, <clears throat> now, now the name just went out of my head, uh, uh, Lila Crane, you know, the sister, Janet Lee's sister, played by, and now I can't Vera remember. Miles. Vera, Vera Miles. Miles. Yeah. yeah, it was Vera Miles and, and Tony getting back together. It was Hilton Green, who's passed, who was the, um, the producer, but Hilton Green had been the first AD, the first assistant on, on the original Psycho. Uh, Henry Bumstead, uh, who did the uh, set design for the, for the original. That means that Henry Bumstead created the Psycho house. He did Psycho too. I mean, I went with him the day over to the to the architectural department at Universal as he, as he pulled out the original plans. My goodness, I wish I'd asked him for a copy. The, uh, but I mean, it was it was it was the last roundup of of of, of the, the Hitchcock loyalists at Universal, and so it was a very memorable experience to me because, I mean, I I don't want to. He's got one of the greatest directors ever was Alfred Hitchcock, you know, and he created so much of what we think of as modern horror today. Did you receive any negative response? Because you basically take it a classic and I'm not saying waiting to the body was cold to make another one. But did you receive any negative response after making the sequel? Well, we must have, but I don't remember it. My memory. Is, <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> yeah, my, my memory is the reviews were overwhelmingly positive. And I think that was because everybody was expecting it to be a, an exploitive ripoff, and it wasn't. Right. Well, that's what I think is clear. <laughs> I think it's clear that it was done with care and, you know, that there was a lot of thought put into it. You know, I don't really see how anyone can be angry with it. Thank you, and I, I agree with you. That was, a, that, was an, that was a work of love, Psycho 2, really. That was I think it comes across that way. Yeah, it was paying, it was paying homage to Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, that's right down to the camera moves, the visual set pieces, the kills. All of those things worked off of, of Hitchcock's oeuvre. Oh, it worked great. The, the, I, love the, I love the overhead shots that we just like him, you know, because you, you got it on point there, the DOP and everything. The overhead shots of like Norman up, going up the stairs and across the hall and all that, all that good stuff. It, 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 it really held together. I really didn't catch it until I saw the, the Psycho 4 or Psycho the beginning, whatever it was called. Which had Henry Thomas as Norman, and it, you know, obviously we're talking Luke and Dagger, but it's like come full circle or something, you know? <laughs> right. It's just you know, it's amazing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Who would who would think the kid from Cloak and Dagger would end up playing the young Norman? But there you go. Um, I guess I would bring it to where we're going to talk about it this episode, uh, Cloak and Dagger, which is pretty much how I, I stared you into this interview. I, I reeled you under something like that to talk about Cloak and Dagger. Um, tell us how it all came about. Well, we—I I, was—I was very hot as a writer after uh, Psycho 2, and Universal came to me and Richard Franklin, who directed Psycho 2. At that point, for for, for five minutes, we were a, a team, and uh, they asked us if we would remake The Window, and The Window was a Cornell Woolrich short story. It was the juvenile version of, 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 of Rear Window. And Cornell Woolrich also wrote the, 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 the novel or novella Rear Window, which became that, that great movie by Hitchcock. So, so we, had, we had the juvenile version of, 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 of called The Window, and it was how to update that and, and make that into a movie that would, that would work. And I, I guess the year was 1984. And... Uh, uh, I it was too thin. I found it too thin. It was really it was really the boy who cried wolf. You know, it was that parable, and that 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 just wasn't enough. 
And I can't, I was, I was working the idea of, you know, of, of, of what would you do if you were in trouble and seen a movie. And that was a, a moment in time when Dungeons and Dragons was really big, <clears throat> you know, and you were just starting to have, you know, video games were just sort of start, starting. You had Atari, which had, which had come out, and you had the, the arcades that had ping pong, pong, and that had uh, Space Invaders. This is probably before both of you were born. But it was, no, unfortunately. <laughs> it, was, it was the beginning of the modern, of the, you know, of the, of the culture that we have today in, in, in gaming. And, you know, and I, I don't know, I don't know how I thought of, of, uh, of the imaginary character, Jack Flack. But that I did, and that was more fascinating to me than anything else. So really what I did is I wrote an original screenplay called Cloak and Dagger. And it didn't have anything to do with the window. I mean, the one nod to the window in it is towards the very beginning when when Davy's playing the game Cloak and Dagger, he sees a reflection in the window in the building across the way of what's happening on the floor above him, and it's the murder of the scientist, the shooting of the scientist. And that's the one nod to, you know, to the to, to the window, you know, to uh to seeing something out your window, <clears throat> a terrible crime, and that—that's it. And then, of course, the the scientist comes staggering down the the uh, the stairway and shoves the uh, the uh, the game into 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 Davy's hands. That's and now he has the you know it, it's thirty nine steps. Now he has uh, the, the the something that the spies want and will kill for. And this 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 twelve year old boy has it, or fourteen or whatever, however old he was at the moment. It, it took that it, it took that noir twist. It's like a noir film for kids. That's why I kind of love it. I, <laughs> even as an adult, I, that's what I, you look at you view it differently as an adult. I view it now as a noir film for kids. You know, that's a good way of looking at it, Gary. I'd never thought of that. I know I've got. I know as the years have passed, I've gotten some uh, some uh, emails or whatever you want to say from from parents who thought the speech toward the end that the bad guy gives Davy when he's looking for him along the river walk. And he says, I'm going to shoot you in the knee. I'm not going to kill you quick. I'm going to shoot you in the kneecaps. The, uh, the, uh, so, you know, so, so yes, it, it has, it has a, 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 it has a noir layover, I guess. I know that that one instant was considered too strong for, for, for PG, you know, you know, but anyway, and that, and what happened was Cloak and Dagger was not a success theatrically because it wasn't released well because the regime that gave it the go ahead was then replaced by another regime that dumped it. But Cloak and Dagger went on cable and it became just huge all the way through the 90s. That's where I caught it. Yep, and it, it. I mean, well, you know, I mean, I, I went down and did a, uh, a Q and A at a screening of uh, Cloak and Dagger. How's this for a double bill? Cloak and Dagger in class of '84. Uh, I'd go to that double bill for sure. <laughs> well, it was at the New Beverly, which is the the theater here in L.A. that Tarantino owns. And I went down and I looked out at the audience, and everybody was like 32 to 42. You know, there were. They were all those people who growing up with it in the in in the late eighties and nineties on cable. And that was the audience, predominantly male for Cloak and Dagger. Well, you, and then and then I mean I happen to think I love the film. And it's a ter- I think a terrific film. And, you know, terrific terrific performances, but it's been pulled pulled from cable rotation by, by Universal. And then they also pulled it from Netflix and they pulled it from uh, from Amazon, so now it's hard to find. And I was told that they had pulled it because they're planning on remaking it. But I haven't, I haven't seen any publicity releases or anything. But it's not as well known now because Universal has made it very, very hard to find. And it never got a Blu-ray release. No, it's only, it's only in standard def. Now, let, me, let me tell you, you know that that movie like it tears me because it, it releases like the, the little boy in me. 
you know, the kid that played cops and robbers in the backyard. That's right. That's right. Uh, wait, that's what I was going to say is when I was a kid, we played cloak and dagger. It was like, it was, that was a, it was a big thing. And, um, it just seems kind of bizarre to me. I can't even honestly picture a remake of that, but I can't picture a remake of half the things that are remade, you know, so whatever. <laughs> I mean, I have my own memories, you know. I sympathize. And to anybody who's listening to this podcast, please go out and see if you can find a, a copy or a bootleg copy of Cloak and Dagger and take a look at it. It's 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 a huge it's huge fun. Well, yeah, a special surprise for you. If you have Voodoo, it's available in in, in HD on Voodoo in full 1080p because no I, I own it, so it's it's on my digital library. Now, now what's Voodoo? Tell me. It's like a a, a digital uh, movie store put through by Walmart. You can get movies off of there and stuff. If you and can, you can purchase them, and then you you have them in your library, you know, on digitally for you know forever. I mean, like you own them, so you can just go back and watch them whenever you want. You know? oh, well, but you can also terrific. do rentals through there, can't you? I think so. I believe so. Yeah, on certain things. Well, that, that's terrific because I I used to do that through uh, through Amazon, and then Amazon. Maybe I'm thinking Amazon Prime. I can't remember now, but I could. I did like like a year or two ago. I could find it online and then suddenly i couldn't find it so i'll remember voodoo and walmart thank you what was it like work with dabney coleman and as soon as he popped on the screen you know and that 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 leather outfit he wore that mustache yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he was like the coolest thing i ever seen in my life you know i, I want to be that guy you know well I, th- I thought he was terrific you know we all thought of him at that moment in time as as the boss from nine to five exactly <laughs> but, but he's he, he's he has a he has a comedic uh, 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 touch to you know to, to 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 almost anything that he does, and so he made it a lot of fun. And I thought Henry Thomas was great. Oh yeah, he's fresh off ET, right? That's right. That's, That's right. what I was gonna say. He was he was pretty big at the time because of ET, right? So that was a good get. Yeah, but it was, it was this was also a moment in time when films were predominantly R. And Cloak and Dagger was PG, and it was just like half a beat before they started making family films again. Mm. So mm-hmm. I thought, to my, I thought to myself, Cloak and Dagger was maybe a year or two early, in terms of what was happening in the culture. Oh, the stuff, stuff that happens in the film is is very uh, un PG in, in parts, like, like the part you mentioned where the tunnel scene with D- Davy and the, the 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 one of the baddies hit with the submachine gun. Right. I mean, Davey, he's, 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 what, 10 years old, uh, Henry Thomas in this movie? That's right, that's right. He kills, yeah. he kills a man on screen with a gun. You know, you wouldn't see that in a PG film, you know, killing somebody, not in cold blood, but basically, you know, a 10-year-old shooting somebody, you know. I couldn't get away with it today, could I? Probably not, you know. I mean, I mean, just look at the way the culture was. But I mean, Jaws was PG, you know, so it it's... And Poltergeist was PG, and I don't know if I mean like the Poltergeist remake that just came out, uh, um, which I was not pleased with personally, but um, I think that was PG thirteen. So I mean now I mean it would just you're right. I mean I think it, things would be completely different now. And if they when they're talking about the remake, do you know are they would are they planning to make it like a family film? You know I don't know, but I would think so. Because That's what family, I would think, but yeah, family films certainly predominate today. The uh, somebody out there in, in podcast land could um, send an email and ask Universal. <laughs> then, they tell, then, they, then they could tell you, and you could tell me. Oh, the, well, according to that magical thing called the internet, I, I see that must have been an old headline or something or a bogus headline that Tom Holland wants a remake of Cloak and Dagger. Now, from, yeah. our, from our conversation, I knew that wasn't true. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but going going back to ratings, you know, when I think when Fright Night came out, it was an R, and I that wouldn't be even a, I don't know if it'd be a PG thirteen today, you know. So it tells you something about the the changing mores of the country, you know. Well, and also the lovely people behind the ratings board, who it seems to be arbitrary. I, it's just. You know, sometimes I don't know what they're thinking. Well, I, I, I feel the same way. I felt the same way back then. Or you can always put, I, I, you can 
probably can't pull a Wes Craven and go steal an R like he did for Last House on the Left, you know. I forget that story. How did he get that? I forget. I heard something about something on a documentary and like, wow, just go steal an R for your movie. That's fine. (laughs) Nothing out. (laughs) I I remember that I had to that I had to go to the ratings board, I think, in New York City and plead with them not to make Fatal Beauty an R. Fatal Beauty is a a movie out of the genre that I did with Whoopi Goldberg and Sam. Mm -hmm. uh, Yeah, but that was originally a hard R. And I think that that was because there were so many mofos in it, you know? (laughs) And I had to cut those down because Whoopi couldn't open her mouth without swearing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that must have been an experience. Yeah. Oh, man. I guess, I, I guess the big one that a lot of folks talk about, and it's 30 years old now, so it makes me feel old. I'm sure it makes you feel a little old, too, is uh, Fright Night. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess the biggest question, I have is so many dead people on this episode. What was it like to work with Roddy McDowell? Roddy was a love. I mean, you know, Roddy was very, very supportive. You know, Roddy had appeared for me in Class of 84, and Roddy, Roddy could, I don't know, Roddy could do path, pathos. Roddy could make you sympathize with him. Roddy, especially Roddy, especially in 1984, that that movie, Class of '84. Yeah. Well, Roddy, Roddy could bring you to tears. Roddy. All it takes is that look. He has those eyes, and he does he that one just endearing look that makes you want to hug him. Yes, <laughs> he had that, and he also had a bit of the ham, you know. So he he was perfect. You know, originally I wanted Vincent Price. But Vincent was not in good health, and Vincent was a dear friend of Roddy's. And I ended up having dinner with Vincent Price and his wife at Roddy's house after we'd finished. But when, 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 when Vincent wasn't able to do it, you know, I, I immediately thought of Roddy because of class of 84. And Roddy came in and met with me. I don't think he read, but he came in and, and met with me, and we talked about the part. And he had the image of the cowardly lion which I thought was wonderful. And, you know, and, and he did something else, too. He, I, had a, I had a comparatively long rehearsal process on that, like two weeks, and Roddy became like the, oh, I don't know, how the, 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 the lovable uncle that held everybody together. You know, the, the, <laughs> yeah, he, he, was, he, he, smoothed, he smoothed everything out. He, he supported the cast, he, you know, he, he supported me. It was my first directorial effort. So Roddy was like the godfather to Frank Knight, and he was just terrific. I'd imagine it'd be great having that, that not not calling old, but the old the old hand hanging around that's been around for a while to help you along. It's very comforting in situations like that. Yes, Gary, it is. I had a question from my friend here, Tristan. We call him Tristan Gnarly Martin. Um, are you, were you a big fan of Salem's Lot before making Fright Night? Because he knows there's a few similarities between the two. He didn't mention what those were, but yeah, well, I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of Salem's Lot of Stephen King and of Toby Hooper. So Salem's uh, Salem's Lot had one of the scarier moments in it. I think in the kitchen towards the end, where the vampire appears out of the blackness on the floor, or yes. he's killed and falls back in the blackness. I forget. But with the family, a, when when he's sitting around with his mom and dad, and the and the vampire shows up and then kills the parents. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that movie, incidentally, Salem's Lot, when it originally aired on television, scared me to death. And for the next twelve years, I had to sleep with my neck covered. I mean, uh, I was terrified. Uh, and to this day, if you want to make me lose sleep, you just tap on my window, and I will. I mean, I'm, it's all over <laughs> for me. So that was that left an indelible impression on me, and also created me as the horror fan that I am today. So, um, yeah, it was that was a brilliant film. I love, it. and for a TV movie, you know, it was, it was a miniseries, and I believe it was a huge success. I think it was, I think it was four hours. Yeah, it was it was over two nights, I think, and yeah, yeah. um, uh, it, yeah, it was huge, and and it was definitely huge for me. <laughs> but I mean, I'm just trying to think. You know, if you compare that to, to, I mean, of course, we have TV shows today like Hannibal that really stretch the limits as far as uh, you know, gore and and theme. 
But, you know, back then we had TV movies and miniseries. Horror was all over the place as far as like the movies of the week and miniseries and things like that. And we don't really have those anymore. Not like we had back then. I miss those. No, it's amazing. I I don't know how to explain that. The uh, I ran into uh, network censorship on Langoliers, and which was very very mild. If you consider, if you consider in 1968, ABC made I think it was ABC made a movie of the week called Trilogy of Terror. Yeah. You had you had Another the vamp, you had the vampire movie written by Richard Matheson, I think in the same year, which was the highest rated TV movie ever on TV. And that became Kolchak, the Night Stalker. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like the late 60s, early 70s, you could do more on TV than you can now. And I don't know why. Uh, Too too many folks have different feelings. And that's the nicest way I could put that. There's a lot of opinions out there. Well, you, you you know you're you're still restricted restricted on network TV. Yeah. And it's cable that's opened up. Oh you yeah. Know? But I mean, you know, I mean, I think about this. 1968 was uh, uh, the George Romero film Night of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. Here we are in 1985, and the, the 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 most watched TV series is The Walking Dead, which really stands on George's creation of zombies. So it's taken from 1968 with a little horror film that was savaged critically in my memory to where zombies are the are the biggest TV show for mass audiences. So that's like 45 years or something yep. for it to permeate its way for zombies to permeate their way through the culture to where it's mass marketing. It even passed Yeah, I mean it's- Past, All over the mainstream. Uh, the mainstream, yeah. Past the past the horror culture uh, to the every culture now. You know, what what I what I call the normies watch it now too. You know. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yes, Gary, that's right. It's gone from being an acquired taste to being a mass taste. Um, yeah, one, one, a couple more questions about Friday Night. Actually, um, we talked about Hitchcock before. Uh, how much um influence did Rear Window have on Friday Night's ba- basis story? You know, Charlie being the neighbor to Jerry Dandridge and seeing him doing all this nasty stuff to these different call girls. Uh, did that have a big influence on that, that part of the script? Yeah, huge. Because I was, I was working cloak and dagger trying to figure out how to incorporate the, the voyeurism from the window, which it was supposedly based on. And I wasn't having a lot of luck. And I said to myself, if you really want to update the, the, the window, what you should have is you should have a horror movie fan who looks out his window and sees his next-door neighbor chomping down on a beautiful girl. But, of course, you know, the, nobody... I wasn't... I, I was supposed to make a, a, a PG film broad-based with Cloak and Dagger, so I couldn't go into horror. And uh, But the idea... The idea, Gary and, and Jamie, stuck in my head. I mean, I thought that was one of the funniest concepts I'd ever had. But I mean, I had the idea for Fright Night because I was working on, on Cloak and Dagger. How'd you find the, the, the right uh, makeup designs? Because even, even today, you know, the puppets and the appliances still show pretty damn good in HD. And that's hard to pull off in a movie that came out around that time. Well, I, I had, I had the absolute best in the business. I had Randy Cook. I had Steve Johnson. They were doing the puppets and the, and the makeup. And then I had a guy named Ken Diaz, and then I had uh, I had Richard Edlin doing the uh, the visuals, the mat effects, the traveling mats, and what those guys were, they were the group that had just finished Ghostbusters. So I inherited the effects team from this huge movie, Ghostbusters, into my small little genre movie, which was really sort of a throwaway from Columbia, but I got absolutely the best in the business at that moment in time. And it only happened because Columbia wanted to hold that team together for other for other movies. And even back then they were thinking about a, a sequel to Ghostbusters. And so they wanted to hold Richard Edlund and Boss Films together. And to give them a paycheck and something to do, they they, they gave them Fright Night, which is to say they gave me 
the best people working in effects in the genre at the time in Hollywood. It was a it was a blessing, and it was just pure luck. And with that, it truly is a blessing because it really shows in the final product and something I still enjoy, still enjoy the hell out of today. And I, I can speak for shit my entire listening audience and say I'm sure they enjoy it much as I do. That one, that film is universally loved within the horror community. Everyone knows it. Everyone loves it. From the makeup effects to the soundtrack, it's just, it's incredible. And it really is like a, it's a, like it's a, I don't know, like a cross-section of time right there. Everything just sort of came together. Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> I like it, if you can't tell. <laughs> you know, I mean, the dumb luck of the beginner, you know? the But, I mean, I, would, I, was, I was supported by, by the studio. There was a, a guy uh, who was head of production named Shel Schrager, and he really gave me the best people. And I don't know why. I mean, Fright Night was the little throwaway at the studio. You know, they had, a, they had a slot. They wanted a genre film. Uh, and I was a very hot writer. And so I, I just got lucky. But, I mean, I don't know if I've ever had such a collection of talented effects people and cinematographer and Brad Fidel and, you know, David Shackler was the music supervisor. I had all, I had this absolutely top team of people that came together supporting me in Fright Night, and it was it was just amazing, you know the uh, and I think that I think that that's one of the reasons it's held up. The other one is that that was really written. That's a love letter to fans from me. That's my memory of what it was like when I was a horror movie fan, you know, in this small town in mid-state New York, and you could only watch a you know, you could only watch a horror film if, if you if you looked at the independent TV station at 11 o'clock on a Friday night. And they always had some terrible, tacky host, you oh. know, that would introduce the films. We got ours now. He's in syndication, actually, if you know who Sven Gulli is. Yes, 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 yes. Uh-huh. He's in so they're, still, they're still around. I don't know if the younger kids know, though, you know. Uh, it, it takes uh, folks like us to introduce those people to them. And, you know, <laughs> it, we, well, we had a whole conversation about p- passing films on to, to the, the younger generation. And Friday Fright Night is one of those perfect examples where you got a you know, great cast, great young cast. And, and Chris Sarandon, who with new eyes looks, like, looks very metrosexual for 1985, you know. Yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> with his deep like, V sweaters. He's almost like crushing on Charlie a little bit, in my opinion. But that's that's just this guy's opinion, you know, because he's almost sensual when he breaks into his room, you know. <laughs> that was, well, it, he was a perfect choice. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was just everybody coming together. There wasn't there wasn't a foot wrong, really. The but I put it down to luck, not brilliance. The well, uh, the I also think the characters are well or well written and relatable. And so even though it was thirty years. Oh wow, thirty years ago. Um, yeah. There's yeah. they're still very relatable. So I mean, if you've ever been a teenager, then you can relate to Charlie Brewster or you can relate to evil. You know, it it's it, these these same people still exist today. Oh, I was the evil in my in that group, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but you know, there there was there were only a few of us in those days, Gary. You know, I mean, we were, I mean, being a horror movie fan was, was, you know, you were like, you know, you were not one of the cool kids when I was in high school. The, uh, but it, it, I think that, that, that the affection I had for that time, because that was a time of Hammer films and AIP, horror films, you know, they, this was before slashers, really. The, uh, maybe that's why I think that, the, what changed it all for me was Psycho. And I must have been like 12, 13, 14 when I saw that. The, uh, that, that that's why I think Psycho is the beginning of the modern, modern horror film. But, but, but Fright Night harkens back to an even earlier time, you know? Harkers, harkens back to the very late 50s. The, uh, the other thing is, is that Charlie Brewster is the engine that makes it go because he's the one that's motivated. But the heart of Fright Night is Peter Vincent and Roddy McDowell. Yes. Yeah, and I think that that's, 
so unusual to find in a horror film that that it, it's it's made fright. My love for the genre somehow has made Fright Night stand out because it's it's so it's so affectionate about the memories of being a a youthful horror fan. And what I what I what I found is that. And it, 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 it has shocked me, too. But, I mean, it's passed down from generation to generation. I mean, I'll have three generations. You know, grandparents with their, with their grandchildren come up and tell me how much they love that film. And it's, it's very gratifying and it's humbling and it's wonderful. And I was, I, it never occurred to me that was going to happen. Okay. If you'd asked me, I would have thought that the child's play was going to be the one that, that would be huge. And it was, but... It's even 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 Chucky hasn't engendered the kind of affection that Fright Night has, and that may be because you have all the sequels to uh, to uh, Child's Play that have that have rather diluted it, whereas you didn't really have that happen with Fright Night. Somehow the remake and and the 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 the, the, the direct-to-video sequels they they don't seem to have touched or or hurt Fright Night itself. What's your, what's your take on the, the, the remake and, and uh, Tommy Lee Wallace's Fright Night Part 2? Well, Tommy Lee is a friend. I like Fright Night Part 2. It was it, I thought that was a good attempt at, you know, at continuing it, but he got shorted on money. They, you know, at that moment in time when they made a sequel, they, 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 they were trying to make whatever bank they could off of the success of the first one, and it wasn't expected to, to do more business. Whereas now we're in a we're in an era of nonstop sequels and remakes, and they put more money into them because they're hoping to do better, you know, uh, based on the success, you know, of the prior one, Ten Poles. But back then they shorted the sequels because they figured they had one maybe two weekends and that was it. That was it. So Tommy wasn't Tommy Lee Wallace wasn't given the uh, the financial. Uh, uh, support it might have been given, and the sequel. God bless him. I thought it was a terrific movie. That's well, fun. Yeah, great cast and everything else. I didn't. I thought they made a disastrous mistake with Peter Vincent, but that's you know I'm I'm prejudiced, so you know. I I, I thought that the the see the problem I have with Friday Night Part Two is I think that the, the the main character in Regine is kind of weak, but her her cohorts are very entertaining. Yes. I'm a big John Grease fan. I'll, I'll be till the day I die. And he's in that movie as like a wolf person or something. And Brian Thompson's in there eating bugs and stuff. And right, right. <laughs> it's it's a lot of fun. They're her, her 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 band of merry misfits. And but she just wasn't very fun. So that, that was pretty much the weak point of the film for me. Well, see, she's also a friend, so I can't say anything. Oh, I'm not I'm not shitting on her at all. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, you know, yeah. I I like her cohorts better than her in that movie. Right. Right. Um, what's, what's your take on, on remakes in general? Do you think they like sully the project depending on what it is or? Oh, I, you know, that, it, that's so hard now, you know, uh, to say, uh, Gary, it, it, it's because the, it's, it's so different now. I mean, Hollywood and films, what's happened is, is the, when I was making Fright Night and Child's Play and all those films, they were. Your, the, the bulk of your audience was, was, was domestic, North American. And now, I don't know the exact numbers, but now the bulk of your audience is international. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so the, the, the greater the, 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 the audience, the film market, and the more expensive the film, the more uh, homogeneous, homogeneous, whatever the word is, the safer it has to become mm-hmm. because it's got to travel world, worldwide. And when you're when you're making films that start at eighty million dollars up to two hundred million dollars, the financial bet is so potentially ruin ruin it ruin it can ruin you with that kind of money if you make a mistake. So everything's about everything now in movies in Hollywood is about protecting the investment, and movies haven't become have become less and less the thing themselves. And and if you want to cover your bets, you want to you want to do a remake or have it have been successful in a in another form like a novel or whatever. So you, you, the, you there, there's no risk. There's no appetite for risk. 
in Hollywood right now, and that's killed the original. And of course, my preference is for originals because it gives you more. It gives you more voice. It's more interesting. But that's the opposite of what's going on now. And so it's 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 made films films have gotten more boring. I mean, the the interest is is more on cable TV right now. But that'll change too, because we're in a we're in a technological revolution, as you know, and everything's going streaming and on the internet. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's it's a time of it's a time when the movies themselves seem to get more rigid and more boring, but the internet is getting more interesting, but yet with less financial support. What do you think of like some of the new horrors, like uh, It Follows, and uh, the new um. Well, it's not made in Iran, but it's got an Iranian director. A girl who walks home, who walks home alone at night. And have you seen the new horrors? And what do you think about them? Well, I, I think they're terrific. I all, the I have not seen the Iranian film. It was nominated for a, for a best foreign film, I think, uh, internationally. But it follows. I thought was terrific. And it follows to me was an updating of an American film made in England in the fifties. Call was it called Night of the Demon? It's where they, it's where oh. they, it's where they pass the black spot. They pass, they they pass the piece of paper from one yeah. to the other. Is it ringing? Yeah. A, is it ringing a bell? Oh yeah, I, I love that movie. And it um, actually just watched it not that long ago uh, again. But to me, that film is very like the the later Sam Raimi film, Drag Me to Hell. Is that to me seems like just from head to toe a um like his version of that same kind of story you know because you're passing the where she passes the button or the gypsy takes the button and then you have to give the button i mean like i don't know that's it's right, very similar right. to me well i thought um, i thought it follows was like that where you have to keep passing the, that the SPD. Is, that is really interesting i never thought of that bef- in that light but i can totally see that now i want to i want to sit down and actually think about that because it makes <laughs> a lot of sense well, they, everything is new and nothing is new. Right. <laughs> uh, here's a good question. I just love that you that you continue to support. I mean, you you are constantly popping up in little independent things or like um, it, just a couple weeks ago, I watched the Crystal Lake Massacre revisited, um, yeah. which and then you popped up and then your your character's name was Charles Brewster, which. I think is adorable. I love that. Um, and then you were in, you know, um, like Adam Green's the digging up the marrow, you know, when he was right, right, talking right. to you at the convention stuff, you're always at conventions and just um, very open and supportive of the genre. And I think that it's things like that. Well, that will hopefully keep fresh stuff coming, you know, that because there's nothing like the horror genre and, and fans of, the horror genre. So even though we might go through slumps where Hollywood doesn't want to pour any money into into what we love, then there there are always people out there who will support it. And you're one of those. And I think that's huge. Well thank you. And so are you, Jamie. And you too, Gary. Oh thank you, Tom. We have to call it a day because I have to move on here. But okay. I thank I thank you both very, very much for this. Can I ask you two more questions real fast? Sure, go ahead. Um, you, you mentioned convention, and I know you get your big Terror Time Productions thing going on. Um, I know a lot of folks are really bashful. I, I, I still am. I've been going to conventions for 10 years about going to meet their favorite stars. But you sell, you know, memorabilia that's, you know, licensed and really signed by folks, you know. How, how did you come about doing that? Well, because I don't go to very many conventions. I'm not I'm not big on flying, Gary. The uh, so I I tend so I was I just got all these requests, and so I put up you know th terror time, on you know on the web, and then we have a very active Facebook page, and I did that to, to sort of satisfy uh, collectors collector demand, and I'm also a big fan of horror art. And then Joe, Dan- Joe Dante's come in and joined me on Terror Time. You know, and he's got uh, Gremlins and uh, uh, Howling up there, you know, if you, wa- if you watch Signed. It, it's sort of a place, you know, for, for us guys who don't want to go out on weekends very much. You know, the, there was that and also a way to display fan art. 
and we're we're up to, we're upgrading the website right now, and I, we're gonna I'm gonna start a blog because I want to have a place for for horror fans to, to to write their own articles and to and to post their reviews. Not professional writers, but people who are really people more like you and Jamie who are really deep into the genre, and you know and and like I said, I, anything that has to do with effects, you know, sculpturing, sculpturing, uh, painting, makeup. I'm very enthusiastic about that because I know so much about it, and I know so many of the people. And so I, 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 I've sort of tried to make a, a home for that on, on Facebook and on the Internet with, with, T, with, with Tom Holland's Terror Time. Yeah, my friend Tristan again. It asked me to ask you if you could divulge anything about your new project called Fresh Blood. I'm writing that with with Juan, with a, with a, and a, with, a, with a Spanish fellow who's very very talented. He just he has out right now a film called uh, called uh, Extinction, which is playing all is playing overseas. This is obviously you know a Spanish film. And and uh, it's uh, it's on VOD here, and it's very very good. And he's like he's like you know you guys, you know he's he's a horror movie fan. And his name is Wanda Dios Guardunio. I can't pronounce it. C U E N C A. But he's very very talented, and we're doing that. And then I think it's very very good, and we hope to get that made. So that's the that's the story of Fresh Blood. And I like the title. That's a great title. All right, yeah, um, this has been great. This has been, been a great hour, sir. We appreciate you taking all this time with us. My pleasure. You've I been very you. generous with your time. And well, thank you both for having me. And I wish you the best of luck with the podcast. Oh, yeah, thank you very much, sir.